Hey everybody, welcome back to This Mattering, where we ask the hard, important questions about investing. I'm Jason Hall. I've got Jeff Santoro here with me. Hello, Mr. Voice of the People. How are you, buddy? Hey, I'm very good. I want to thank you and our listeners for joining me on my investing therapy session last week. Uh, it was cathartic for me. I feel better. I'm a whole new person. So thank you to everyone. You um, sold the stock too. We can't talk. We're not going to talk about it, but you sold the stock. I so did. I trimmed, like... I trimmed something. Yeah, yeah. First time I've ever trimmed a position. But like, yeah, I can't talk about it right now. Maybe next time. Yeah. So as we uh, kick things off here, quick housekeeping for everyone. We've we've seen a nice little uptick in our listeners and our YouTube viewers and commenting and liking on our podcast apps. We're really super appreciative of that. We want to keep encouraging our listeners to do that. If you found the show recently, if this is one of the first episodes you're listening to, because maybe you got turned on to the podcast through the John Rotanti interview from a couple of weeks ago, welcome. And uh, if you could do us a solid and give us a rating and a review and let someone else know that that uh, you really enjoy our podcast, we would appreciate it. And with that said, we, we we decided today would be a little bit of a follow-up conversation after the aforementioned financial therapy session for myself. So we're going to just talk about stocks in the stock market and sort of come back to, it was important for us to, to come back to the toolbox and the the strategies and frameworks that we try to use and we try to encourage others to use to stay investing in stocks, even when it's been scary or difficult. It's it's funny because we're following up an episode that's titled, I don't know how to invest anymore with an episode titled, let's talk about stocks. It's, it's like, the answer to the question. There you go. There you go. But here's the thing about it, right? I'm going to go back to that kind of sports metaphor a little bit here, but it's like, you know, everything else, what do you do when you feel like nothing's working anymore? You go back to basics and you work on it. And that's, we're going to be doing a little bit here. Jeff did caution me before the show not to go too far down memory lane because we do that. And I definitely tend to do that. But again, the, the, the back, the backdrop, I think is really important. It's been a tough, not even really just 18 months here, right? Because we're nearly to the end of May here. So, you know, we're pushing a year and a half, but really if you think like October of 2021 is really kind of the peak for a lot of the stocks that have really crashed. Cause that was like the tech stock, the SPACs the SAS, like all that cloud stuff. That's when it all peaked was back then. The NASDAQ peak was in October, not in January. So it's been, it's been tough. And I, I don't, I don't know that I've ever in my investing career in 15 plus years, Jeff, I don't know if I've ever seen more people talk about valuation in my entire life. And a lot of them, bro, these are people that I've known and followed for a long time. They haven't ever talked about valuation, and now they're talking about valuation. Well, it was so easy when interest rates were at zero, and especially in 2020 and 2021, to just ignore it. Because if not in that short time frame where everything went up, over the last 15, 20 years, like a lot of stuff went up despite having high valuations. And that's just not the world we're in anymore. But yes, you are seeing the... There's no more rocket emojis on Twitter. But you are seeing a lot of mention of, you know, the valuation things that were sort of quiet for those couple of years there. Yeah, it, it it it's wild to see all that come out of the woodwork. I'm looking at a chart right now, and and of course it's always great to do visuals on a podcast. But I just I was just curious. I wanted to look at it, and and I know that really from like the early 1980s 
through really the past up until about six or eight months ago, we were on like this this long-term trend of downward of of downward interest rates. But really, like if you look at 2010, coming through the financial crisis, you know, like the real interest rate was something like two or three percent in 2012, 2013. So it was even even not just that 2020 period, but really the 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 eight years before the pandemic, Jeff, money was as cheap as it has ever been. And inflation was really low during that period, right? So I think that's really important to remember is it wasn't just that money was cheap. Money was cheap even when factoring it in, you know, the the the, the federal government, the interest rate we were willing to pay the federal government to to lend money. And then of course that passed through in the interest rates that every everybody else was able to use for money were extremely, extremely cheap. And like you said, we didn't have to talk about valuation. Nobody was thinking about it very much. Again, in the zeitgeist, right? Right. Because I promise there's a lot of really good investors that have always thought about valuation that just maybe don't talk about it that much. And I don't want to say it created an artificial, a period of artificial returns, but there was a period of abnormal returns. Yeah. And I think anyone who listens to this podcast, I, I would assume wants to be someone who can build a portfolio and an investing strategy that can weather all sorts of types of markets. And what I what I imagine it has happened or is going to keep happening or will happen is a lot of the people who don't really understand what investing truly is and are more speculators or traders maybe already have been washed out of the market because we've been through such a long sort of downturn. But if, if you want it, an example of what this looks like, just go on Twitter and put in dollar sign G-O-E-V and do a search. And you're going to find those people. That's canoe stock, by the way, Jeff. That was smooth, wasn't it? That was very smooth. Well, yeah, but I think you and I, obviously you and I, but I think most of the people listening want to figure out how to invest for now, but then also figure out how to invest when the market inevitably turns around and we have another bull market, but then also invest when it inevitably turns back down again. So like the thing I'm thinking about for myself is what habits frameworks, understandings, learning, can I do now that will help me now and still put me in a good position when we have the next run up or bubble or whatever, because they happen. But then also the next time there is a downturn, the next time we go through like a 2022 type year, I won't be scratching my head and panicking or anything like that. I'll be thinking, been here, done that. Oh, and by the way, I've built a portfolio that can sort of weather all these different types of storms. And that's where I think you and I were chatting as we planned this episode, we want to come back to what are those sort of timeless things to remember with your investing that can help you get through all these difficult times. I, w- I want to spend a little bit more time talking about the valuation thing. Cause I think again, I'm, I'm hoping I'm not very hopeful, but I'm hoping that a lot of people that have gone through this period and a lot of people, honestly, that they kind of benefited from that run up and never really considered valuation very much. You know, they were, maybe a member of a stock picking service that like put stuff out there and, and, and they weren't necessarily doing a lot of the research on their own. And now the game's a little bit different where maybe you need to be thinking about doing more due diligence of your own investing is, is really thinking about like valuation within the right context of how to use it. Because I think there's a ton of people now that, you know, like Dividend stocks are all the rage. You know, we've talked we've talked about that, and like to the point where it's pushed up a lot of those blue chips to where 
people are buying dividend stocks at extreme valuations and accepting below average yields and people are piling into cash and the pendulum has swung the other way. And it's one of those things where I think it's still like a really smart strategy. Like David Gardner's talked about this before and Peter Lynch has talked about it before is that a lot of times the companies that trade for a little bit of a premium multiple, so maybe using price to earnings, you're paying an above average multiple versus what the market is bearing, whether in that moment or you know, over the long term, you can do it because the E is growing at a really fast rate, right? The earnings, companies that are growing their earnings at a really fast rate. Jeff, earlier this week, you and I were talking about this exact same thing and Starbucks came up. Right. And this is a company it's been really profitable for a long time. And it's kind of gone through periods where things were not great. But like the long term, you've got great, you know, tailwinds, coffee consumption around the world is growing. At its core, it's a really high margin product. It's a commodity. And if you're the largest buyer of that commodity, your scale can help you. And then like all of the benefits of their structure where they like they tend to like to license and like in the U.S., like the, a lot of the U.S. stores are licensed, so they get really high margins because they're the licensee and not the operator. So things like that that they've built into their business and then on, on the back end generate really, really good operating leverage and steadily crank up those operating margins where the million and first dollar is worth more than the first million dollars like in, in profitability, right? Where you might get 20% margins on your first million dollars in revenue, but your second million dollars, you get 50% margins. So that it's a perfect example of a company that's benefited from that. And it's almost always been worth paying a premium to own Starbucks because it was able to grow those earnings at such a fast rate that even as the multiple might come down over time, the value of that stock has always accelerated faster than the market because of that earnings growth. The thing I keep thinking about with valuation, and I'm glad you, we stopped on this topic because I want to. I do. I also want to spend some time here. I feel like there's companies where you you think about valuation almost first. So I think we're at the point right now where if you're looking at high growth tech, cloud, SaaS, if you're looking at Cloudflare, CrowdStrike, Okta, all these like darlings of 20, 2021 20, that were like growing revenue 100% and not profitable, and maybe they were or were not cash generative. It's easy to be like, oh yeah, those are companies now I have to really be careful about with valuation. What I think is interesting, and I'm guilty of this too, you've been a good check on me with this. People aren't thinking about Procter & Gamble, Target, Costco as things they have like stocks where they have to think about valuation. I think people are viewing those as like safe dividend paying. Let me let me put my money there and not in these cloud stocks. But some of them now because of that because everyone's having this flight to, to quote unquote safety, now they're trading for multiples that we haven't seen in 2 or 3 years. And you don't like you don't think about Target as being overvalued necessarily because you look real quick, oh the PE is like 0.7 you know, or something. I, I don't know if that's what it is. Or the price to sales is 0.7. It, that's got to be cheap. But you realize like, yeah, but it's usually 0.2 or something like that. So right, I think right. it there's I tricky... think Target's a good example, right? Because yeah. that's one that you and I actually talked about this mm -hmm. week, because I think what, like recency bias is the thing. And it's easy and really dangerous to look back at a stock's performance over a very short period of time and reach certain conclusions. 
and Target's a good one, right? We were looking at that and the price had come down a significant amount because I mean, they've grown their revenue an insane amount since 2019 because they've like proven that they've figured out e-commerce and like whether it's delivery or, or same day pickup or, you know, you in-store pickup or they stick it in your, in your car, all like they've nailed that. They've done an incredible, incredible job. And at first blush, like you said, it might look cheap, but then you like compare the stock to five years ago. This is a stock that's trade. I don't know. Was it trade for 25 times operating cash flow? And it used to trade for like 11, <laughs> you know? So it's again, that's the thing is I think you have to, it's so important when you're thinking through this about stocks and about valuing them, not even just thinking about how the, the environment's changed. We've talked about that enough here, Jeff, or the reality is that it, it, when you can get 4% on a 10-year treasury, even 5% on a 30-day treasury, you know, there's a lot of money out there that's not even going to look at, at stocks. Like, let's not, we don't have to talk about that. Just thinking about the, the, the multiple for a stock today, for a predictable, stable business today versus five years ago, and if it's trading for a premium multiple, Unless something has materially changed for the better for the business, for its ability to grow its earnings, that I think you just have to start there. And again, that's it's like you know what, you're the past five games you've gone zero for twenty five, and you've popped up to the second baseman every game. You know what? Just go back and start hitting the ball off a tee into a fence. And just figure out what's wrong, and reset. And we can do that with stocks too. And and that's a lot of times just looking further back at the data and kind of resetting ourselves and making sure we have the right expectations. Yeah. So that's kind of what I wanted to ask you about. So I would love to be the kind of investor that eventually feels really comfortable and enjoys doing discounted cash flow or something like that to figure out like, what, what do I think this company, what do I think is the intrinsic value of this company? If you, um, if you ever want to do, if you ever enjoy doing discount, discounted cash flows, Jeff Santoro, I don't know if we could be friends anymore. I understand. This is why I like to talk to you about it because I know you will never do them, but you also have a good handle on valuation. So I want to say what I do to kind of get a quick sense of valuation. And then I want to hear like what your strategy is. So if I'm looking at either a new company I haven't bought a, bought yet or adding to a company I already have in my portfolio, I will look at all of the like normal valuation metrics. I'll look at price to sales, price to earnings, if there are any, and then price to free cash flow and price to operating cash flow and see what they've been historically over the last three years, five years, maybe 10, maybe like max, and just see, is this within the range of between where it, its low has been and where its average has been? That's sort of what I'm interested in seeing. And it is interesting because like I said, companies, you don't really think evaluation first on these safer dividend paying companies are actually compared to their like historical price to operating cash or price to free cash flow expensive, even if the price to sales or something might be one or 1.2 or something like that. So I, that's what I do just to sort of get it. Now I'm not saying that's you look and that's the answer and you go, but that gives me sort of a frame of mind of where it is compared to his, his historical average. And then sometimes I'll also do the same thing, but compare it to other companies. So like if I'm looking at, just to use Target as an example, because we were just talking about it, I might look at Walmart, Costco, other similar type stores to see like how they are comparatively in terms of valuation to these other companies within the same sector or industry or whatever. So I'm curious, like, do you do anything similar to that or how do you think of it? So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm basically too, like I'm, 
I've come to accept that I'm really two different investors in my, in my, like in my own head and the way that I think about my portfolio. I've talked before about like the barbell strategy that I have, and you almost have to be two different investors when you do that. So I, I certainly consider valuation with every stock that I, that I buy. And I've got some examples I can kind of talk through, but again, just to kind of lean into the, the, the target general mills, Walmart, Procter and Gamble kind of world. And for me, that's more like Walgreens boots Alliance. Other, some of the dividend stocks, like the, the Brookfield cohort of stocks, bank stocks. I've talked a ton about that. I think with those sorts of businesses where they have, they're really established, they have a long track record of results and like their, their go forward ability to grow is more limited. Valuation matters even more. That's where you, ha that's where, that's where just, oh, nobody ever lost money buying that stock. That's the stupidest thing in the world because you don't buy stocks to not lose money. You buy stocks to make money. You buy stocks to make money over long periods of time. Okay. So if you're buying a stock to not lose money, you need to buy cash. <laughs> Number yeah, you one. You might as well just have cash. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you're doing it wrong. And, and we've seen so many people with these stalwarts and dividend stocks, they're chasing the wrong thing. They're trying to not lose money. And I, I get the, like, I understand like the, the, the vibe, I feel the same thing, but you're, you're, do, you're, you're chasing the wrong thing. Right. So again, looking at those historical valuations, making sure I understand the business, like with their trajectory of earnings and thinking about, again, not next quarter, not next year, like in those forward PE ratios and stuff, those are always like next year. Like I, I look at those things, but then I like to just try to think about the business and say, okay, where's it going to be in five years? And the, the price to last year's earnings that I could pay today or the price to the projected earnings over the next year. Now, what, what about five years from now? What do I think its earnings could be in five years? Are they going to be 25% higher, 50% higher? What am I paying for that? Right. And so then, then you're starting to build in some sort of evaluation based on like, again, not what happened, but what you're expecting to happen. Right. And then think, okay, what if I'm completely wrong? How far off am I? You know, I don't want to say I'm Warren Buffett, but honestly, it's a little bit like, you know, John Ratanti talked about like how he's kind of deconstructed that, that Buffett method, but it's a little bit of the same thing. It's like pay a reasonable price based on what you think the company is going to be doing in multiple years, you know? So that's, and go ahead. I was going to say, that's where it's sort of the same thing that I've been realizing recently, which is the companies you think of where valuation matters are sometimes the ones where it may not matter as much. And here's what I mean. Yeah. Like going back to my earlier example, and this is something I'm, this is like me that I have to untrain my brain with this. Like, again, if I'm thinking high growth, new tech companies, I'm thinking valuation like right off the bat, because you look at them and they're trading for 30 times sales, right? Something crazy like that. But the reality is that company might actually be, you might have more success buying a company like that overpriced because it could really take off and like double in five years versus what, Procter & Gamble. You pay you pay too much for Procter & Gamble. There's nothing they're ever going to do that's going to get them to grow more than maybe the cost of, or the rate of GDP or something like that, right? They're going to, they're a exactly. slow, steady right. grower. Right. So the you overpay for that. There's no margin. They might have some operating leverage and their earnings is going to grow a little bit above it. And then you can add the dividend yield on top of that. But yeah, you're not going to get 25% earnings growth. Right. But if you ask yeah. your average investor, 
anything about valuation and like what they think. Like if you did like a, I'm going to say valuation, what companies do you think of? They're going to name high growth tech, mm -hmm. you know, overpriced high multiples, which you should, but like, they're not going to mention all the companies we've been all piling into at, in our flight to safety. Yeah. You know, and, and meanwhile, those are the ones that you have to actually be more careful about in terms of the price you pay. I absolutely agree. And I'm going to use Upstart as like the example of the other Jason, Jason, the growth investor to exactly your point, Jeff. And I want to, I want to hat tip to Brian Feroldi on like this way of thinking. And again, it's, it's kind of the way I've, I've thought about it, but, but Brian summed this up really, really well. And honestly, this was kind of during the madness that he, he, he talked about this, but I think it's timeless advice and we don't need to throw this, this way of thinking out just because things have been tough, but if you're going to overpay for a stock, it's to pay, to overpay for a small company that is growing rapidly in a very, very large market. Upstart is the example, okay, that I want to use here. Like if you look at the, the lending market is absolutely enormous. It's absolutely enormous. And Upstart's valuation right now it's ludicrous. You know, their revenue is down like 70% over the past year. So you look at just basically by any measure, they're burning through cash, they're losing money. There's no way to value the company that doesn't say this is an extremely overpriced business, right? Today, it's a $2 billion market cap. It was $35 billion market cap at the peak. But what did we learn? What did we learn about it during that peak period? We learned that this can be an immensely profitable business when its lending partners are actually using its platform. Right. So you're never going to get the perfect price on a business like Upstart. You're buying it based on their ability to execute. Right. You have to set a floor like you have to set like a ceiling. You have to be reasonable about it. I mean, the, the there's so much perfection that was baked into a 30 billion dollar valuation that now it's like. You know, the, the stock's doubled and it's still down 92 percent from the peak. Yeah, I mean, just to put numbers on it, I mean, I know price to sales isn't the perfect metric, but it got above forty-five price to sales in during the run-up in you know mid to late twenty twenty-one, and it today it's price to it, it trades for three point three or three point four times trailing sales. So again, just I think you know, Upstart, I think is just kind of an exemplary stock to talk about. Really, you're buying for execution. But, and of course the but is at some point, the valuation just doesn't make sense. And you bake so much future execution into the price that the upside gets more limited. So I think that's kind of how I think about it when we talk about growth stocks. Valuation matters less, execution matters more. Right, but there's a, it matters less, but still matters, right? And I think yes. that's where, when you see the consternation out in social media around Upstart, it's because a lot of people bought it in, July, August, September, October, November of 2021, when it was on its way up. And you could make the case that it may never get back to, it may not never, it would take a long time to get back to that price. But if you bought it in July of 22, or six months ago, or one month ago, you could make the argument that even at that, even if it was still overpriced, considering what you're seeing with the business, there's enough potential and growth in the future for that company, if everything turns out the way we hope it will that you could be fine from that quote unquote over overvalued price is, but it, you know, there's a, a limit to it, I guess is my point. La last thing I want to say on it, because I think it's important to tie these two different 
ways to think about investing together because they're really not that different. Just you're with the with the slower growth companies, you have to lean more on getting the valuation right because they've proven they can execute. And with these higher growth companies that haven't proven they can execute over the same period of time, you know, it's it, you want to make sure you're you're there's room to execute well. We've talked about Airbnb as an example. It's like how big can it really get? You know, they can right. execute really well, but only within the the confines of their addressable market. So I think that's where you have to be more thoughtful about it there. And you're really kind of taking the same approach with some nuances that are differences. It's not that different. I think that's the big thing that people need to think about. Yeah. And I think what coming off of last week's episode when I was like sort of lo feeling lost and I've that helped. And then, you know, we got a lot of great comments on Twitter, people kind of feeling the same way. And we've talked to other people along a little the kumbaya way. moment there. Yeah, it was nice. Thanks listeners. I know you're there for me. So what I've tried to think about is it was funny. I almost found myself coming to the same realizations of things that I said on this very podcast almost a year ago when we sort of kicked things off, right? When we were first doing this and we were talking about introducing ourselves to our audience and talking about the ways we invest. And we did that series called How We Invest and we talked through our processes. And as I bought my stocks that I did last week that I buy every week, I really sort of found myself coming back to like what are my fundamental, you know, sort of frameworks and finding like comfort in them, you know, even in this like crazier time. So like, I still try to think about the long-term potential of companies that I really like. So for example, you just brought up Airbnb. One of the reasons I really have high conviction in that company is that I truly believe it's a generationally important company in terms of like, if it disappeared, we'd notice that snap test that we always talk about from David Gardner. So like long-term trends, like, is it an important company in an important space? Check, right? In my mind. And then I keep track of all the normal financial results, revenue and net income and operating cash flow and those types of things. And I, I look at trends. I look at why things might be trending up, why things might be trending down. I try to think if those are short-term or long-term headwinds. And then I have you know KPIs or key performance indicators that are specific to the company. So like with Airbnb, I like to think about how are nights and experiences looking, right? That's their primary booking metric. What about longer stays? What about cross-border travel, like the things the company sort of evaluates itself on. And the same thing, look at trends. Why is it trending up? Why is it trending down? And then think about the valuation, both in terms of where it's been historically and where it is today. And then like you were saying, where do I, what do I think makes sense based on what's ahead of it? So I, that's always, that's how I was investing before, like all of the craziness of the past several months. And I found myself coming back to that. And I think it goes to what we've talked about a lot of times, which is like, have a framework, have frameworks, not rules. Cause like you like to say, rules are rigid and frameworks are, you know, make you think rules, tell you what to do frameworks, frameworks tell you how to, tell think. You how to think. Right. But that's kind of where I, where I kind of landed after last week. You know, I, I try to think about what I'm trying to accomplish and then what are the right tools I need in my toolbox to accomplish it. Yeah. And I, and I think you hit on something that's really important. You know, we're talking about going back to the toolbox and we, you know, you and I both like, you know, our, our relationship, began through our, our shared interest at the Motley Fool and me doing some work there and you started as a member and now you're doing some work there too, which is about stocks. It is a, it is a, the Motley Fool is about helping people 
make better in investing decisions. Almost all of their services are built around stock portfolios, right? But as a holistic, as a whole person, you're the toolbox stocks are just one small part of it. And we've talked about, you know, we talked about dividend stocks and everybody's kind of fallen in love with that flight to safety. And I've done videos, Tyler Crow and I did a video talking about, you know, you can get over 4% yield in, in your brokerage in a money market now. And other things like this is, I think this is continuing the conversation about stocks, Jeff. I think we're in a situation where there is a very high probability, particularly, this is a little bit of kind of cherry picking the numbers, but particularly if we go back to the beginning of 2022, when the broad indices peaked in that first week of January, over the next five years, I think there is a very high probability that the stock market delivers below average returns. I think it could deliver below average returns for the next decade, realistically, because of the fundamental shift in in the low the the zero risk rate of return treasuries again assuming the government doesn't default and stop paying on those treasuries yeah this, this is either going to age poorly or age well in a couple of weeks yeah so you know wh whether we see a default or not we know a year from now it's it'll be resolved but again the point is that interest rates have return to more historically normal levels so quickly that I think it has created an environment where it's very likely that we're going to see below average stock returns, right? The next five or 10 years, but they are still the long-term wealth creator that more people have access to than anything else. I'm going to say that again, they're still the best long-term wealth creator that most people have access to. Most people can invest in real estate outside of REITs, publicly traded REITs, right? Most people don't have the money to go start a business to create wealth, but you can buy parts of businesses with $5 or $5,000 in public equities. You can get 5% in a money market right now. You can get four-ish percent, three between three and 4% in savings. Even if the market underperforms, Jeff, and only delivers five or six or seven percent returns on an annualized basis, that's still better. That's still better, right? Yeah, right. Because the the historical data is what nine or ten percent about per 10%. year annualized yeah, about ten percent. So you could under yeah it could under when you say underperform, I I think it's clear. We we want to be clear that doesn't mean like the stock market will return two percent. Right, you're saying underperform, meaning for, say for the next five or ten years, we average a return of like you said six, seven, eight percent rather than nine or ten percent. That's an underperformance to the historical average, but it would still be higher than any other investment vehicle theoretically. And I think that's that's where the long term kind of thing about stocks is important to remember. And it's also the other thing too is we don't really it could go that way or it could go the other way. You know, if if in interest rates get cut at some point in the next couple of years, but not back to like where they were. But if they get cut back to the two, three range that we saw, you know, like you were talking about back in like 2012, 2013, you were talking about that earlier, you know, then maybe we're in a different situation. But I think the point is, and this is sort of why we talk, we called the episode, let's talk about stocks is because, you know, despite all the 
trepidation I expressed, I still, I, I agree with you. I still think this is the place that you want to keep your money for long-term wealth creation. Yeah. I, I'm going to push back a little bit on that. If interest rates come down thing, because if interest rates come down that much, Jeff, it means we went through a recession and probably a pretty bad one. And that means stocks are going to underperform for a period of time leading up to that recession. Maybe this is that period. Maybe it gets worse from here. I think there's the potential for a leg down. So there's right, what we even expect. If, yeah. And but then there's what's going to happen. Right. When I talked about interest rates going down, I'm thinking it to me, that means, yes, we probably go through a recession. But to me, it says that it's less likely that 10 years from now, we're still underperforming the market because recessions typically don't last for 10 years. That was that was sort of it was a long term thinking thing. Um, I want I want to give you two numbers. I think these are really, really kind of insightful numbers. So 15.97% and 8.68%. So 16% and 9%. That 16% number, that's the S&P 500's annualized returns since March of 2009. So we've gone from the, the best time to buy stocks, the scariest time to buy stocks in most of our lifetimes, the financial crisis. The market generated 16% returns over 15 years, 15 years, right, of that above average returns. If you go back 18 months before that to the October 2007 peak, 8.7% returns. Hmm. So, you know, again, I think about that January 22, 2022 peak to me feels potentially like the pre-financial crisis peak. I'm not saying we're going to see a 50% market drop, but thinking about how so many other factors have changed with interest rates and all that kind of thing, right? Yeah. So anyway, that's that's my doom and gloom. And even with that doom and gloom, I'm still 95% stocks. So it's interesting that we end there because when we come back after our break, we're going to answer two questions we got via email about what to do with, you know, found money in, in two different instances. And I think it's, it's very much related to what do we do with it when stocks are still the long-term place to be, but in the short term, there's other places that are giving pretty decent yields. Jeff, are we going to be playing what's in our listeners drawers? (sighs) We'll see you after the break, everybody. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It is time for the second part of our show, and we are doing a mini mailbag. This is an unplanned mailbag, 
And it's one of those strange things that just kind of happened where we, Jeff, you, you got a couple of, a couple of emails. Yeah, right? we got, so it's oftentimes we plan for the mailbag and we'll, we'll put a message out on Twitter or say it on the previous episode, send us your questions. But we do occasionally just get questions sent to us unsolicited. And we got two this past week, which were both variations on a theme. And that theme was, I just came across money I wasn't expecting. What do I do with it? So I'm going to summarize the two situations rather than read the lengthy email. So the first one was... Or to paraphrase phrase, Inigo Montoya, no, it's too long. I will sum up. <laughs> you That's like your favorite go-to movie to quote lately. It is. It is. It's a great movie though. So I, I get it. So the first, the first email was someone who inherited a stock portfolio. So it was an unfortunate death in the family. And now the person has a decent chunk of change in three stodgy dividend paying stocks or what used to be two stodgy dividend paying stocks. And one is a spin out of one of those two. So it doesn't matter what the stocks were, but just think old school dividend paying, like the kind of stuff your grandmother has, because that's where this inheritance came from. It's and funny you mentioned that because my, my grandmother... When she passed, she, my father and my two aunts inherited some Verizon stock that my grandmother had inherited from her sister, whose husband had worked and retired from one of the baby bells that ended up kind of yeah. rolling up. So I think everybody's got a similar version of this story. Yeah. I think if you inherit, if you're our age, right? So just to, if you're like in your thirties, forties, whatever, and you inherit a grandparent's stock portfolio, you're probably going to have some dividend paying stocks that they've owned for a very long time. So the question was with a, with a, with two kids going to, going to college within the next four to eight years, what do I do with this money? And what's interesting is that, or what do I do with these stocks? And I think it's interesting that six months or a year ago, we might've had a different answer, but now that you could get four or 5% in high yield savings account or CDs. And with this person's first child, only a few years away from college, I don't know what you think, but my first thought was put it in savings, <laughs> put it in a high yeah. yield savings account, maybe build a CD ladder. But you know, the, the rule of thumb is if you need money in the next, what, five to seven years, you don't want it in the market. Cause who knows? So what do you think about this, this listener's predicament? So first, I want to I want to get this in here for this question and for the next one because it's the same thing. I think it should be abundantly clear that two dudes with a podcast are not individual investing advice, right? So, especially um, us. Yeah, <laughs> there are other you. two dudes with podcasts that you might want to trust more. We are not those two people. Again, any any podcast is not individual in, investing advice. Right? Right. Nobody knows you and your situation, yeah. right? So we're going to talk about what we would thing. do if we were in these situations. Yeah, and and again, it's it's you 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 want to figure out how to think about it and not have somebody tell you what to do. Right. And I think that's the important. So I think it's a good starting point, Jeff. I, I agree. I think if you're, if you're looking at this found money as an opportunity to, for things that you want to do in the near term. So Jeff, Jeff and I have a little bit of a debate about something here and Jeff is probably right. But the key thing that happens is when you inherit an asset the cost basis for the asset resets. So if, if your grandmother's stock that she held for 40 years has appreciated 7,000% and you have no business, no interest in owning that business, you don't pay capital gains on granny's gains. It resets to current market value, right? The date that it resets, 
you got to figure that out. Talk to somebody smart. They can help you figure that out. But the point is, is that it resets, right? So whatever f current market value is, and that's, that's hugely advantageous, particularly with things like real estate. Jeff, I had a, a good friend who was in his sixties and his mother lived in the house, had lived in the house that he grew up in. So this house was, you know, paid off decades ago and she had moved into a, a retirement facility and she had done well and had other assets to pay for her, 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 her life did not need the proceeds of the house. And my friend, Tom was his name, Tom and his sister, they were thinking about selling the property. And I explained to him, you know, you're talking, you know, adding $300,000 to your mother's income this year. That's going to be taxable unless you absolutely have to sell it. Don't wait till your mom dies. You know, it's morbid to say it, but wait until after that event, because when you inherit it, then you can sell it and you re you get a reset, right? So there's major economic benefits, financial events when you inherit these assets to dispose of them after you inherit, as opposed to before whoever you're inheriting it from passes. So that's number one, right? So there's no reason if you don't want to own that asset, sell it as soon as it's advantageous for you to do, right? That's, I think that's the smart thing for most people to do, Jeff. And then kind of back to, you know, thinking about the toolbox and think about your goals. If, 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 if you, let's say you're going to use it for your kid's college or your kid's 11, right? You still got six or seven years. So maybe it is time to maybe dollar cost average some of that into stocks or put it in the the five two nine or something like that. But you don't have to be in a rush about it. You can take your time. Put it in well, a money market for now and get some return and and let the and get rewarded like we talked about with Berkshire, with Buffett. Get paid to be patient as you're kind of diversifying it into other assets. That was my first thought was there's no other than the decision to sell the stocks if you no longer want to hold them. There's no rush to any other decision because the nice thing is you could just park it in a high yield savings account and get 4% interest on it while you're making your decision. There's also no one thing I would, again, not to give advice, one thing I would consider if this were my situation is I, I don't have to do the same thing with all of the money. So I have no idea. Right. The person didn't say how much it was, but let's just pick a number. Let's just say it's $100,000. So you could put, you know, maybe you put 10 or 20 of it, 10,000 of it into the market in something, you know, an ETF or something like that. And maybe you put the rest in cash or you build a CD ladder with some and you buy a money market with the rest, you know, like there, there's, you don't ever have to do the one thing, but I think the nice thing about right now in this decision is you can park it in a place where it will get some gain while you kind of make decisions. I, I also, I encourage people to think about a couple of things when you, when you're in this situation too. Num number one, when you have found money, I think the best thing to do is kind of step back and think about it like triage, right? When a patient comes into the ER or hospital, they go through triage and they identify what, like, let's, let's prioritize the things that we need to do first, right? If somebody has gone through a massive heart, heart attack, right? Well, you know, you're probably not going to, you know, ask them if they have a headache, you know, you rush them into, into surgery, right? So, so you can do the same thing with your financial life. And if you know, you haven't, built up your emergency savings as quickly as you should. Well, hey, guess what? You just got an opportunity to do that, right? And like Jeff said, you don't have to do everything. Yeah. Maybe you also have $25,000 in credit card debt. Pay that off before you put a bunch of it in savings, right? So again, thinking about prioritizing it. I think it's also good to think about what are, what are the wishes of the person that you inherited it from? 
What do you think they would want you to do? What would make them smile or make them pleased if you did with that? And you know what? Maybe it's blow five grand of it and go to the Bahamas for a, a long weekend. You know, seriously. Well, treat yeah. You, I mean, treat yourself. What if your grandparent that you got it from was a degenerate gambler? You know, yeah. you, you never. No, there wouldn't be anything left if that was the case. <laughs> no. So, but this, before we transition to the other question, I, I think that brings us back to what you said earlier, which is this is why even if we were pretending to be financial advisors, we can't be because we don't know the situation of this person. Um, yeah. You know, if, if just to use that $100,000 number again, if your emergency fund is zero, yes, the first thing I would do is devote the right amount of money from that pot to be, to building my emergency fund. And the same thing if I had a lot of debt. So the, the, the second question is similar, but a little different. Same situation, inheriting a bunch of cash this time. So nothing encumbered, just money. But the person is a teacher in their 30s who has admittedly not saved as much for retirement as they feel like they should. And they're getting a late start in education. So there's a little bit of a they're behind the ball on the pension side of things as well. So different situation where you're kind of thinking about catching up, missing out on, you know, what, 15, 20 years of investing appreciation because of a career change. So this is a little bit of a different situation. I know you had an, an interesting idea of, of how to do some catching up through a retirement account. My, my first thought was I would, if it were me, I'd probably at least max out my IRA each year with that money, right? Cause that's six grand a year right there. Right. So um, yeah, chances are, if you're, if you're a teacher, if you're an educator, you're probably below IRS income limits and you can max out your, your Roth, right? Yeah. I, I agree. Do that right off the bat. That is the smart way to supercharge. You don't get the tax benefits today, but you'll never pay a penny on gains or withdrawals. Once you're, you know, 60, 59 and a half, that's, that's the smart move. So the question also included, can I, or should I, you know, pour a bunch of the money into my 403B, which is like the educator version of a 401k. And my first thought was like, I don't think you can do that because it has to be tied to like your pay, but you actually had a solution for that. Yeah. Money is fungible, right? You, you can't take that money and put it in your 403B. I'm guessing that would be almost nobody's going to be allowed, allowed to do that. But what can you do? You can crank up your contributions from your payroll, right? And well, guess what? You just replace that income with a, with an inheritance, right? So you have the money to offset the reduction in your income. So you can keep the same lifestyle, pay all of your same bills the same and just crank up your, 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 your contributions. And oh, by the way, you also get the benefit of lowering your taxable income, right? Because the 403B lowers your taxable income, your contributions, right, Jeff? Yeah. And the other thing I would say Rich people get all the benefits here, man. Seriously. Just, yeah. <laughs> well, and th this is where- You inherit so one, money and you're going to get to pay lower taxes and you're going to have more money when you retire? Sign yeah. me up. So depending on how, again, neither of these listeners gave us dollar amounts, and which is appropriate. We don't want it in dollar amounts. But one of the things I was thinking about with both of these situations is if it were a like significant, significant sum of money, meaning like, ridiculous amount. Cause you, you know, sometimes that happens to people. I would probably do the thing we talked about of waiting. Like, let me put this in a high yield savings account. And then I'd probably pay a fee only financial advisor to just give me some advice on the smartest thing to do with it. So right. go find thing, a chartered financial plan or a CFP 
somebody that, yeah, like you said, is like a fee only, right? You, you go give them 500 bucks and they're going to meet with you two or three times and go through your financial life. And they actually have an, an obligation to act as, act as a fiduciary. Most of the financial right. advisors out there, they're salespeople and they have no legal or otherwise ethical requirement to offer you financial products that are the best thing for you. They can offer you things that pay them more commission. Right. Even though there's other, even though they know it's not the best thing for you, find a CFP or some other sort of fiduciary. And anyone who is a fan of, I know we have a lot of listeners who are Motley Fool fans or subscribers on the Motley Fool Money podcast. There's a lot of episodes featuring Robert Brokamp, who's someone from the Motley Fool that is like their resident financial planning expert. And he mentions there's two specific networks of financial planners that you can go to their website, find someone near you, reach out, find out how much it would be to have them sit down with you for one hour or two hours or 10 hours. You can pay for as much help as you need. I'll put those in the show notes. I don't remember the names of them, but they, like like Jason said, they are, they are fiduciaries. So they are bound to being someone who can give you unbiased financial advice that's best for you and not try to sell you a product. So I think in closing, that would be my actual only advice. I think I can say this is to get some professional help. <laughs> my advice would be to get advice from someone who's qualified to give advice, just to make sure you're well, not- and, and can understand your individual situation Correct. and your goals and all Correct. of those things, right? That a couple guys of the podcast are not going to be able to understand. I mean, it's like, the, let's, let's be honest, Jeff, we, we want to have as much control over this as we can. The financial services industry has a terrible reputation for good reason. They fleece people. They've jargonized the industry and made it harder to understand so that they can take a cut. You change the oil in your car. That's awesome. You can save some money doing that. Right. But chances are, if your car needs a lot of work, you're going to go pay a mechanic and you're not going to feel bad about doing that. And yeah. we need to do the same thing and like not let our ego get in the way from talking to somebody that can give us objective advice to help us make better decisions. And that's where the fee only piece is important because, you know, you might end up paying a thousand or a couple, you know, maybe $2,000 if someone really has to put together a comprehensive plan for you, but that's a hell of a lot cheaper than someone who becomes your guy. And, and I'm putting that in air quotes for the listeners. And then you're paying them a percentage of your portfolio, right. which you, may you seem up, like you end up with $50,000 less right. in, in 25 years. And, I remember when I was 22, the idea of paying someone, whatever, 0.2% of my portfolio versus shelling $1,000 out for advice, I would have taken the portfolio, but you don't, you're not thinking ahead to like, well, what happens when my portfolio is hopefully down the road, $2 million, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that's right. a, a percentage of that is a whole different situation. So that's why the fee only, I think is the way to go. That's awesome. Jeff, we did it, buddy. We did it. Okay, friends. So we've already given one disclaimer, but I'm going to give another disclaimer. As always, Jeff and I love to share our answers to these hard questions about investing and about personal finance, but it is up to each of you to find your answers, build a framework, figure out how to think. Don't look too hard for other people to tell you what to do. I believe in you. You can do it. All right, Jeff, we'll see you next time, buddy. See you next time.